You're listening to KXOB, Ocean Beach, where Constancy is the spice of life. Welcome to Beach Cop Detectives, a Terrier's Podcast, Episode 13, Hail Mary. I'm Randy Lander of the TV Dudes, and with me today is Alan Sepinwall of Uprocks.com and co-author of the book TV the Book. Hi, Alan. Hey, Randy. How you doing? I'm doing good. So you were the guy who, if not put me onto Terriers, definitely made it go right to the top of my list. You and I have been sort of internet friends for a long time, and I was sort of the comic reviewer guy, and I looked to you for all things TV. And so when you were talking about Terriers early on, I was already kind of excited about it. But your reviews definitely got me to look at it. And, you know, Ted Griffin and Sean Ryan and all those guys always mention you as the guy who was really pushing Terriers. I, I tried. You know, I should have learned my lesson a long time ago. I had been doing this about 14 years when Terriers debuted. And I had fallen in love with a lot of shows that didn't stick around very long. And I thought by now I was sort of hard-hearted enough that I could just sort of accept that here was this good thing that was not going to last, and I couldn't. I wanted to keep going, and I kept writing and writing, and I did one of my, I think it was the last show I wrote an open letter begging the network to renew it for, and it didn't work. So here we are. I still remember that letter, actually. I remember, I, I had that same experience. I'd been watching, I had a lot of shows canceled out from under me by that point, but I was watching it, and I, I was still holding that hope that, Landgraf would ignore all reason and just go ahead and renew it for a second season. Yeah, even in that letter, I wasn't. There was no like business reason to defend it. It's entirely here's a great show. You have other hits. You should do this for the sake of the brand, but mainly to make me happy. <laughs> that was the not, not the last time you tried to manipulate things for Terriers because I understand that Terriers in your TV the book with uh, Matt Solar Sites, you may rig the election a little bit. Yes, but not sort of pro-Terriers, oddly enough. Like, I knew uh, we we pick and rank the 100 greatest American scripted shows of all time, and I knew Terriers was going to be on there, and Matt knew it too. And at a certain point as we were going through the ranking system, I said to myself, you know what? It seems like a perfectly Terriers thing for it to finish 100th and no higher, <laughs> for it to just make the top 100 by the skin of its teeth. And so there were a couple times in the rankings where we kept going through and adjusting scores, and I think it moved up as high as maybe 83. And I said, oh, no, no, that's not right. That's not right. And I just started, like, lowering my scores, you know, and putting it below things that I thought it was better than, just that I did not want it to be any higher than 100. <laughs> yeah, that does seem very Terriers-like. That fits. All right. I was excited to be able to have you on to talk about the final episode of the show, episode 13, Hail Mary. This episode is written by Ted Griffin and Nicholas Griffin, and it's directed by Ted Griffin. And we've talked about the show. People people who have not seen the show, they want to say, uh, well, should I watch it? It was only one season. Does, does it have an ending? And you can say, yeah, it has an ending. It has a great ending. It's a perfect ending. The ending is so good that, frankly, when I saw it, there was a part of me that said, I don't know if I wanted to come back. That's so, like, I knew that a second season would be good, but I couldn't imagine a better ending than the one that the Griffin brothers did there. Yeah, same here. It's that perfect. It's kind of like, I don't know where, I can't remember where you stand on the Angel ending, whether or not you're a fan or not. Love the Angel ending. I'm I'm okay with sort of ambiguous endings if they're meant to be ambiguous. The things that drive me nuts are like when people say, I don't, I'm, I don't want the network to cancel me, so I'm going to do a cliffhanger to dare them not to. Right. And it also goes back a little bit to what 
Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a big influence on the show. And not that you, know, you don't have any illusions about how Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid really ends, but it is sort of in at here's mid-story ending, you know, they, they freeze on that moment. Yeah, and the day that the cancellation was announced, I talked with him a little bit on the phone, and he told me some of, like, what he would have done in his second season premiere. And as he was talking about it, I, I felt very excited. But, like, when I rewatched the episode to do podcast, and I got to the scene where they're in front of the traffic light, I thought... God, this is one of the great endings ever. Yeah, it really is. Let's go through it. I'm, I'm going to just uh, walk us through a bit of this stuff. So our opening shot here is Hank watching a plane go over and testing out his gun on the beach. And I noticed this, and I, I need to ask them about this, that the last couple episodes of, this, of Terriers, there's a lot of shots of planes going over. And I always wonder if that's, you know, is that just because they were shooting in San Diego and that happens? Or was that a deliberate visual reference to the airport plot? Yeah, I mean, that didn't occur to me, but now that you say it, of course, if that was intentional, but also knowing what I know about TV production, it could just be a really happy accident. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it works. It's it's definitely, it shows up again in this episode, too. There's another flight going over to, in a key moment. And the surfer dude who comes by is another perfect ocean beach residence. <laughs> just, just a, hey, man, uh, can you point that thing north of the curl? Like, I, I literally, I was looking at my notes from the episode, and right there when he says that, Lord, okay, that's Terriers in a nutshell right there. Yeah, it really is. And he's also totally cool with Hank playing to murder someone, because Hank says, oh, you're not the guy I'm playing to kill. He's, okay, cool. Yep. That's yep. it. <laughs> it's such a good opening, and so, like, sort of noir and wry and me at the same time. It's really good. And he's right as he's saying, you're not the dude I want to kill, it cuts to a visual of Ben Zeitland, which is a nice little visual flair. And we see Ben talking to his wife, talking about meeting with her friends, and it's such a normal – this is a guy having a normal life. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing, too, when we see Kachaw later. I don't jump ahead too much, but, like, Kachaw and Zeitlin, like, they have lives that have nothing to do with these two scruffy private eyes, and they're able to maintain sort of this facade, and they're not evil 24-7. Right. They've got friends and a life, and, they, you know, they probably have at least one buddy who's like, oh, yeah, that guy's the best. Yep. But, you know, they're doing very, very, very bad things. They are indeed. They are doing very bad things. And uh, while Hank is, is staking out Zeitland, Britt and the uh, the RV crew of uh, Blodgett, Swift, and Gunt are working against <laughs> one of those very bad things, which is debugging the house. I love those guys. Like, I know that the show's aesthetic was, was lo-fi, and therefore they couldn't get too much into them doing high-technology stuff. But I like that they were able to make room for them in a few episodes. They're, they're such a great crew. And... Like you say, their lo-fi, the way they work, their their best bug detector is to listen to 91.6 Classical. Okay, any luck finding Laura? No. How's it going here? Well, we already found six bugs, so. Three in the living room alone. This is how they got to the liquor store, Hank. You're listening. They knew where Jason and Laura were going before we did. Well, maybe we should get them to sweep the truck. Found this in the truck? Find the uh, AM, FM. You guys ever listen to 91.6? We don't listen to Classical. You should. You got a bug nearby. That uh, frequency will let you know. Can you hear that slight distortion in the violas? Yep. The one thing I wish that the episode had was like when it's built around the classical music a little bit more, like they're listening to it, and then suddenly it goes a little sticky. I was expecting that to happen, and it didn't quite. It felt like a kind of missed opportunity for Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's classical, case maybe. Yeah, you're right, because it is sort of a, it's in there, like when Britt is with Ashley later on, they're they're listening to classical, and when they're in the truck, they're listening to the music, and it's, it's, a, it's like a note behind the show, but it's not a plot point. Yes. We get the first indication that Hank is thinking about making a suicide run and that he's suggesting to Britt that he run. He talks to them about that. He's like, look, we can cut bait, grab our fishing poles, go down to San Felipe and then throw away our fishing poles. 
It's funny, by the way, both this bit and the thing at the end, Griffin admitted later on he forgot entirely about the fact that they did the Mexico episode, and at the end of the Mexico episode, Hank and Britt were both wanted men in Mexico. Oh, yeah, that's true. So all the talk of, like, let's flee to Mexico? Bad idea, Hank Dalworth. Very bad idea. <laughs> that, that sort of makes sense. Hank was never what you call a planner. <laughs> this is true. So after credits, Hank goes over to visit Gustafson. And there's that great exchange between the two of them. I love the chemistry that Rockman Dunbar and uh, Donald Logue have, as much as I love the, the chemistry Donald Logue has with, has with everybody, really. But the two of them can slip back into that old sort of insult jokey pattern that Hank has with Britt as well. Yeah, and it's – I like that they didn't change the name of Gustafson because it's – it's a funny visual joke in addition to the fact that Dunbar and, and Logue are so good together. Yeah, it, it really is. Gustafson is – I can't imagine him as anything else at this point. It, it's its such a part of his character that the fact that he's named Mark Gustafson just seems right. Gustafson is on leave and clearly has been – is sort of being forced out by all that's going on. And he's almost in the position that Hank's been in all season. Like Gustafson's been the company man. He's been the cop. And now that he's sort of being forced out, he's working even a little more hand in hand with Hank, which I think is interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's finally becoming an outsider, you know, not, not that he wants to be, but he's been forced into it by his old partner. Yeah. And, but also by his own conscience, because when Hank, tells him that Laura was at this shooting and he has this great line. That's a very noir line. He's like, well, I guess my, my, my fence is going to get painted another day. Yeah. The dialogue in this one really crackles. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, not, not surprising. This is Ted Griffin, Nicholas Griffin writing. It is, it is pure undistilled uh, Griffin, <laughs> but yeah, this probably has some of the best lines in the show. We're, we're back to Brit and Maggie. You know, we get set up that Brit has to report to jail in 20, 48 hours. One of the things I really like about this episode in particular is how much it has to get done and how economically it does everything. Like we know the timeline for Brit, we know the what's going on with Zeitland, we know what's going on with Gustafson, you know, Hank is going to be accused of murder. There's all this stuff moving around and at no point do I feel like, oh, this is a little overstuffed. No, it's not. It's really a ton of plot. And you know, I, I don't really feel like they skimped over anything significantly. Yeah, because we also, I mean, not not only plot, we also have to deal with Brit and Katie has to wrap up. Hank and Gretchen has to wrap up in a satisfying faction. Even uh, Hank and Gustafson. Gustafson has that great turn, turn and walk away moment when he sort of gets his visual goodbye. And they make time for all of those things. I mean, I think probably you could make an argument that they have to rush the Gretchen stuff a little bit. Because it all has to happen within the space of an episode for her to be okay enough with Hank in the way that she is in the final scene. But still, it's it's overall, I think they do a good job. That's true. Although I do want to mention when, when he talks to Gretchen, right after he's been accused of hiring the guys to murder Jason, she's in there talking to him. And that is just a masterclass on acting because Donald Logue has this sort of pained, heartbroken look where he can't even bear the thought that Gretchen might for a second think he did this. And she has this look on her face that where she's just saying with her, with her eyes and with her expression that she doesn't really believe he did it. But at the same time, there's a part of her that can see it because of all this crazy stuff he's been doing. And I love the way that that, that winds up with her basically saying, look, you're a screw up. You've screwed up a lot of lives, but you could never do this. And that's a good touch, too, because it, I, and it would have been hard to pull off with everything else going on. But it would have also been a very TV kind of thing to do for her to fall for the ruse in that way and that to be yet another sort of barrier put in between them. And that doesn't happen. And instead, the barrier is just the fact that Jason getting involved with Hank got him killed, even though it wasn't Hank's fault. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you say, it would have made a lot of sense because 
the the frame up is really good. Maggie, what the hell is going on? Why did Hank get arrested? Whoa, you're live. Two guys confessed to shooting up Sam's liquor, and they're claiming that Hank paid them to do it. What? That's horseshit. It's horseshit that's sticking. Apparently, Hank has been stalking Jason for weeks. Accusing him of being a child molester. Using his credit card. Hey, do you know anything about this? What else they got? Hank checked into the hotel where Gretchen and Jason were getting married the day they were getting married. It looks bad for Hank. It does indeed. I wonder how much of that was them laying a pipe and how much of them was just they looked back as they were writing the finale and said, oh, God, Hank's done all this stuff. Well, based on everything else, my guess was it was happy accidents. There was, there was definitely some happy accidents because we know about Reynolds was a last minute decision and the jacket, which is so important in this episode, was kind of a last minute decision. They were looking for, well, what can we pick up on? And I think that's just good writing is looking at the threads you left and being open to the idea. Exactly right. And the other thing I like about about the scene with, with Britt, the lawyer, is the fact that, like, there are consequences to this. He beat up this guy who had done nothing. I feel like on a lot of shows they would have found some way to get out of it, whether it was, like, making the other guy turn out to be secretly bad or just – or he lets Britt off the hook because he likes Katie or whatever. And it's like, no, you punched this guy's face in a hamburger. You have to do time. Yeah, that's – I mean, there's consequence for that. There's consequence with him and Katie because – Britt, once he's sort of had this experience, finally realizes, oh, I was being stupid. I love this woman. I don't care what happened and has this big talk with her. But she at this point says, look, I, I can't be with someone who could do something like this. Yes. Yeah, one thing like I, I can be with a reformed thief. I don't know that I can be with someone this violent around my child. Exactly. I want to talk about one more thing with Gustafson, which I noticed when Hank is talking to him. He's smoking a cigarette. Yeah, I was going to ask that, like, because I didn't go back and rewatch the whole series. I just watched the finale. So there's no setup in a previous episode where he goes off of the cigarette holders. Nope, it was in that moment. It was it was because oh, I'm not I I've I've fallen off the wagon at this point. Sort of, I'm not the cop. I'm Hank's old partner. Uh, so good, I love it. It's such a great little visual touch. I don't know who's responsible for that. I don't know if it was in the script or if it was the actor's note, but such a great little touch that tells us where his head is at. And again, that's why they can get away with so much plot and so much character being packed in here is because little things tell stories. And every time I rewatch Terriers, I catch little things I didn't catch the last time. Hank goes to talk to Gretchen, and she's surrounded by flowers and food and is throwing away casseroles and I've been in that place where you're just like, okay, uh, this is great, but stop sending me casseroles. And when she's talking about what's going on, and they've picked up these two these two illegal guys who don't speak English, they had to have their their confessions translated. And Hank says, "I'll talk to Mark and make sure they're the real guys." Gretchen looks at him and says, "Why wouldn't they be?" She doesn't know exactly what happened. Like she doesn't know just how much Hank had to do with Jason getting killed. We know a lot more than she does at that point. And I think that maybe the one drop thing is. I don't think, does he ever tell her? Not on camera, at least, but it's entirely, like, some time passes between the arrest of Zeitlin and those last couple of scenes. Right, it's true. I have to wonder if there'd been a season two, if that would have been a little thing hanging over their head that that Hank had never mentioned this to her and that eventually it was going to have to come out. There's also a nice bit between the two of them as, as he's leaving, because she says, call if you need anything, and he says, what? And she says, well, that's what everybody says. You didn't. And he says, because you know, you know, always can. But that, that's not why he doesn't say it, Randy. <laughs> why does he not say it? 
Because he's not expecting to be called. Because, yeah, the next thing we see is he's watching Zeitlin in the distance on his boat. He's wearing his hat and sunglasses, which I think there are no no less than four times in this show, this episode, when someone is wearing the hat and, dis- hat and sunglasses disguise kit. This is a very hat sunglasses episode. And he's on his suicide run until Gustafson spots him and tells him, first, you can't shake a tail and come over here. I love that it's just so casual. Like, you're being set up for this big you know, huge climactic moment, you know, Hank against the forces of Zeitlin and instead Gustafson just walks up behind him. It's like, no, cut that out. What are you dumb? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and from there, the story really gets going on rails because Gustafson shows him the column Laura's written and she makes a reference in there to an expert who confirmed the soul report was bogus, which means that she's talked to Steph. Steph is playing chess with herself. Makes me laugh every time. Oh, it's so good. And she's so pleased with herself, too. <laughs> but no, it's, it's it's all on the, the actor playing the other patient in the mental hospital because he seems like he's so plausibly playing chess with her. Right. Yeah, well, he's looking like he's considering his moves. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I was delighted to see Steph again. And I think you could have gotten away with not not having her in this, in especially in like a big episode like this was so stuff with things. But I'm glad they found time for her because that just that moment was great. And that's another reason why this feels sort of like a perfect finale, because our friends are here again. Yeah. And she gets another great moment where she's Steph has always seems be somewhere between out of it and not in reality and more keyed in than everybody else. So when they're telling her, they're trying to sort of talk her into the, well, did you see this woman who, did she come to you? She looked like this. She's like, yeah, she's like that woman over there. And Laura Ross is waiting for him at the mental institution. And that, which other points out Laura Ross. I love that character. She's really only in a handful of episodes because she introduced late, but she falls so quickly into the rhythm of being part of this team. Yeah. And I think they probably could have had a lot of it with her had the show continued, but Say lovey. She figured out a safe way to to hide, but also in a way that Hank would be able to find her. And at the same time, they're also bringing back like Ashley's another character who was only in two episodes, this one and the one where we introduced her. But she shows up for sort of a key thing this episode where Britt goes back to talk to her and find out if she knows anything. Yeah, it's a, all, not every recurring character, but a lot of them popped up again in this. Yeah. And they all pop up with little bits of information. Whether it's Steph to remind us about the soil report or Ashley gives him the pamphlet from the Children's Hospital in Mexico, which is going to turn out to be crucial, uh, even though it is basically introducing a character that's new to us. And then you've got every other character. I mean, the, another small character who shows up is Robledo, the uh, the patrol yep. officer who was mentioned in a previous episode. He's the guy that the amnesia kids punches in episode five. Yeah. And what's his face? H- Hank's buddy's daughter from the pilot comes back. Yes. Yeah, and she's a key character because she can point to the piece of evidence that they desperately need. I like the interaction between Hank and Robledo, too, by the way, because we don't know what's going to happen. When Hank gets pulled in and arrested, and it looks like, okay, well, not only does a suicide run get stopped, like, this is it. He's He's been arrested. I don't know what's going to happen. And he's, he's put in the car with the two shooters, and Mark is talking to Laura and, and Britt about how... I don't know if these guys weren't hired to kill. They might have been hired to kill one more person. And Robledo is making this call call in about, oh, there's a black SUV following us. I'm going to go to Evasive. And it really does look like a hit is being set up. Exactly. And because they primed us in the flashback episode of the idea that some of the cops could be very dirty and try to screw over Hank, like you think that this could be happening again. Yeah. And the reaction when Hank gives him that, it's very noir. He's like, oh, it's going to be you. 
And I love, again, Terriers does noir, but it also undercuts. So when it's revealed that Robledo's working for Gustafson, his sort of derisive, is it going to be you? Like, that's the most yeah. ridiculous thing that Hank could have said to him. Indeed. Yeah, it's a, it's a very so self-aware weird. noir at all uh, times. So they're on to Eleanor Gosney. They've got three hours. They keep getting time limits on them. They already had 48 hours because of Brit. Now they're down to three hours because of there's only so so many times that Gustafson's guys can move around the shooters before somebody comes looking for them. So they're on a time, they're on a clock, but they know exactly where to go, which is Eleanor Gosney's address. And that was where I saw a plane, by the way. It's a plane flying in the background as they walk up to that place. And again, I don't know, but I feel like that had to have been a visual reference to sort of let people know, hey, this is what this is all about. Yep. Uh, we'd been building to the airport for a while by that point. Eleanor is pretty casual about her dad because she thinks, for all she knows, he just overdosed. He was always kind of a, a loser. He was a, he was a drunk, and I don't know if you know this, but your father passed away. Yeah, I heard he overdosed. Never took him for an H guy, but then, sure, he never dreamed his daughter would one day live in the lap of luxury. <laughs> It doesn't it didn't surprise her that he was dead. No, and she's been sort of casual to begin with in in her dealings with the guys. So it's it's a nice little. They're kind of frantic, worried about the, the world coming to an end, and she's just hanging out with these guys. Yeah, offering them margaritas, no, oh, or, or, or beers, and like, oh right, you don't drink anymore. Uh, I, I also like that Laura Ross is kind of casual back at her. Like Hank and Britt are in in full on panic mode, but Laura Ross. Whether she's been in these situations before or she's just more casual, she's like, yeah, I'll take a beer. <laughs> but they get through this bit of really important uh, reveal where they reveal that uh, Eleanor Gosney was in the meeting with Zeitland and Lindis and this other mysterious guy. And Zeitland was mad at Lindis for bringing her along. And so was the guy who was some rich dude dad used to know. And when she says that, everything sort of falls into place. It's always got to be a man behind the man. It can't just be Zeitland. Yeah, which is a ballsy move, by the way, to introduce a, a big bad this late in the run in the second half of the final episode. Well, when you can get Neil McDonough to play your big bad, you can get away with that. Yeah, that helps a lot. When when the first thing you see of him is is him being charming at a restaurant and he can turn into menacing so quickly. Yeah, you can get away with introducing the guy late in the run. Although, again, season two wishes uh, we would have seen so much more of him. And I I don't know how that would have contra- contrasted with his other stuff. Like maybe he wouldn't have been the Helen Commandos or maybe he wouldn't have been unjustified. However, it would have worked. I, I would have been happy to sacrifice almost any role to see him play more of this guy against these against these two. Uh, he's uh, he's wonderful. And he had done a movie with Griffin before. And so this was Griffin calling in a favor to get him to do it. But he said he had plans for Cutshaw if, you know, things had been different. So before we get to Cutshaw, though, Hank has to go and actually pick up the piece of evidence. And he goes back to the house and Brett distracts the cops in another nice little trope. And Hank goes in and finds the envelope in the ja- in the lining of the jacket. We don't know what what's in the envelope, but we know that it's bad enough that it causes him to say, oh, shit. And right after that, Burke turns up pointing a gun at him. Burke had to die so badly by this point. He really needed to die. Yeah. He was a bad guy who did bad things. And not only that, he was a jerk. Like every time you saw him, he was a guy who enjoyed hurting people, who was really smarmy. Like you hated this guy. I also like, like it's at the end of the scene where Hank kills Burke 
where Britt says we got to stop splitting up so much, right? Yes. Which is a great line because, I mean, if I've complained about the back half of the season of Terriers, it's that there was much less of Britt and Hank together. That's true. They split them up, although they always give us a good surrogate. Like when Britt and Hank were separated, Britt was paired with um, Shangela's character, uh, Michaela, and they had a great chemistry. And then Hank got paired with Laura Ross, and they had a great chemistry. So they managed to make it work. But you're right. It was always a shame to see him split up, and it was nice to see that referenced in the dialogue. Indeed. It was just sort of another close quarters, very brutal fight there. Yeah, the fight scenes... I I love the fight scenes in Terriers. They're, they're, if you go back to the first couple, there's the fight in the garage with the goons and the motorcycle helmet and using the car. And then there's the very memorable fight scene with Matthew Willig where Donald Lowe got injured. And this is a different kind of, this is much shorter and more brutal, but it's definitely of a piece with the other Terriers fight scenes. Yeah, the show definitely had a, an aesthetic of violence that worked for it. And it's in the dark. I, I love that it's sort of dark and, and, but at no point is it unclear. Like, you know exactly what's happening. And when Hank goes over the counter and is knocked in the knife block, he comes back up with the knife. And there's there's just it's very well constructed. And we knew the geography of that house very well by that point. Yeah, they used all the setup they had done to to make it work. But yeah, Burke needs to go. And there is not even a second where Hank considers like, oh, I just killed someone. Like when when Britt comes in, he's like, oh, shit, we should stop splitting up. But neither (laughs) of them are like, oh, too bad this guy's dead. They've seen a lot of dead guys by this point in the story, too. That's true. It's It wasn't like Lindis, where they're like, oh, this doesn't usually happen to us. <laughs> I watched that at ATX again. It's so terrible and funny. Yeah, that Fuster Cluck remains. I, I don't know if I could pinpoint a favorite episode of the show, but Fuster Cluck's definitely in the running. I, I, I'm glad that that's the one that they chose to screen, for sure. Yeah, it was it was the perfect choice. So we go back to the marina, and we see... Zeitlin walking to his boat again, hat and sunglasses, and he gets to run into Hank and Britt. And one of the best interrogation scenes that I've seen where it's it's jokey, but it's also serious where Hank is Hank's holding the gun on him and says, look, I'm going to ask you a question. And Britt here is going to punch you in the face every time you don't answer him. Oh, you. So this is how this is going down. I'm going to ask you questions. And Britt here is going to punch you in the face every time you don't answer them. How the hell are you talking? He didn't ask you a question. You got to answer a question not to get hit. Understand? Question number one. Did you order the deaths of Jason Adler and Melody Ferris at Sam's Liquor two nights ago? Of course not. You got to answer the questions truthfully. But I didn't. Burke did that. He's the one that killed your friend. Burke took orders from you. Yes, but not just me. I give orders because I follow orders. Question number two. You plan on building an airport, right? Right where Ocean Beach is? That one's just on general principle. Question three. Who ordered the death of Mickey Gosney? I don't even know who that is. (laughs) And then he punches him just because he's smart-mouthing, which means he was not answering. 
It's got to pay attention to the rules. That's a gag that that keeps on giving because there's several of those. And Zeitlin gets more and more frustrated. And it reminds me of when Lindis was frustrated with him in Fuster Cluck. He's like, I paid you twice and you kidnapped me. And this is the same thing. Zeitlin's like, I'm answering all your questions. You keep punching me. (laughs) These guys are such pains in the ass. It's great. Yeah, they're they're the the perennial fly in the ointment for for the rich people of Ocean Beach. The rich, corrupt people of Ocean Beach. Yep. There's also the 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 final. It's not the final scene was with Zeitlin, but the final moment in that interrogation, which tells you everything you know about the the level that Hank and Britt are operating on, and the level that Zeitlin is operating on, and what how much out of their depth they are. Because Hank yells at him, "Who killed Mickey Gosney?" And Zeitlin says, "I don't even know who that is." Yep. This whole thing has been defining Hank, and it was such a bit of collateral damage to to Zeitlin and these guys. I mean, part of that is because there was a secondary agenda that we'll be finding out about when they go to talk to Cutshaw. But another part is like, he wasn't a big guy to them. He was just, that was an obstacle they dealt with. And it's a nice, it's a nice payoff right after you get the bit where, where he punches him in the face for nodding. And it's like, I know that was just on general principle. So you can sort of go from this light, light rye moment to like, Zeitlin pulling the rug out from under Hank in that way. Yeah, I'm going to make a, uh, a a rare Street Fighter the movie reference here. There is one of the best lines in that movie, and that's uh, not a high bar to clear, but Raul Julia is the bad guy, and Bison is talking to one of the good guys and says something about, you know, to you, that was the day you, you your whole family died. To me, it was a Tuesday. And that's kind of what I think. It's like, okay, yeah, this, just different frames of reference. We, we now have to quote the rest of the movie throughout the podcast. All right, we will You've do that. You've established a precedent. <laughs> Uh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> we get to that scene in the restaurant with Cutshaw, Zeitlin looking beat up, Hank talking to him. And I want to once again call out the look of this show because it's been great throughout. But the restaurant that they choose, this sort of elevated, uh, you can look down on the whole city. You can look out at Mexico if it happened to be that direction. Uh, that's it's it Again, it visually indicates very quickly these are the high and mighty. These are the people who run this city. Hank and Britt shouldn't even be in meetings with them. Yeah, they are way out of their league, and it's conveyed very neatly visually like that. And I like that Cutshaw is – he's not dismissive because Zeitlin looks like he got beat up. So Zeitlin tells him he needs a minute. Zeitlin's his lawyer, He said, and he knows he's in some dirty things with him. So he knows he needs to go talk to these guys, but he doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't know why. And he definitely has that sort of not not really scared – more amused than anything else at Hank. He's like, how, you know, someone him, someone like this would even be coming at him. Yeah. And that's, he's too dangerous for them. Even after all this, he gets away with basically everything. He just doesn't get to make the airport. Yeah. That's all they get. He talks, he has this nice speech to Hank and it, it sort of highlights again, what we're talking about the, the differences between their, their levels where he says, Mr. Dolworth, I'm not a developer by trade. I made my money in tech, but I do know this. If the water comes out when I turn on the tap, it doesn't happen magically. Or if there's gasoline when I stop at the pump. For the world to function, a thousand things have to go right every minute. And they have to go right quietly. That's why I hired Mr. Zeitlin. To make sure that these things happened quietly. So we could have a brand new airport. But if what you're saying is true, if... Mr. Zeitlin broke the law. He had three people killed. Then I'll have him prosecuted for it. He's lying, of course. He doesn't know. He knows 
every he knows at least some of what happened. He knew what Burke was like. Yeah, of course, because you know who did he have to take care of? Mickey Gosney, right? And that's when his face falls is when Hank mentions mentions Mickey Gosney because now Hank is dangerous to him. Hank knows something beyond the airport. Hank knows something that could really hurt him, and what he knows is heavily implied. Not outright said, but more or less might have been is that he was a child molester or when he was drunk, he had sex with child prostitutes, something really bad because Hank says, I see why you'd build a children's hospital down there. And and then the, just the, the way, way that McDonough says the line about I try so hard to be a good man. It's like, oh, boy, he's doing something very bad that would make him say it that way. It's a great line, too, because you don't feel sympathetic toward him, but you're like, usually when you have if you have a character who's a child molester, that person is dem- demonic personified and to have a guy who's sort of aware that he's doing a bad thing and talks about how he's trying to fight it is just really an interesting and only only a guy like mcdonough could have pulled off that read yeah it's great i don't know about you the whole time they're on that balcony and i knew this wasn't gonna happen but i'm like thinking he could any moment just toss hank off of it he's a large man certainly especially for hollywood he's a big guy and they shoot it so you can see how high up they are and there's this sense of the other they're out he's out on a limb very much so at that point yes yeah ultimately what we get here is he puts his runway somewhere else like the all the things he's done, including murdering Mickey Gosney, he's going to get away with. And Laura Ross will call Hank out on that, ask him if he's OK with it. Although it's interesting too, like the whole idea of like, you know, we'll give you the photo negatives. That is such like, you know, a 20th century kind of plot line. Yeah, Be- because in the digital age, like Hank, ha- there's a million copies of those photos. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're probably already online. Yeah, they're in the cloud. <laughs> we close on a lovely montage of Ocean Beach which uh, is a nice reminder of what these guys were fighting to save with beautiful music by Rob Duncan, as always. And I liked the KXOB voiceover that shows up. I would have liked uh, more of KXOB. I I feel like there's a character in that DJ. Like I would have loved to have seen inside that the community radio station of of Ocean Beach. I can imagine like them doing an episode where he needs to hire them. Exactly. I I feel like that's a character I would have liked to have seen in season two, but the voiceover montage and he's sort of relaying things like Zeitlin's been arrested and that Gustafson, because he was instrumental in bringing him in, bringing him in is back in his office and, you know, back on the force. And there's a nice little moment where Robledo walks by outside his office and they both kind of nod at each other. He's Gustafson's guys and they, they did, they did good. Yeah. They, they, uh, the good guys triumphed after all, you know, the, they had to work around the system a little bit, but they triumphed. And if there's not a better statement for terriers, I don't know what it would be. That sometimes you work around the system and things work out. Yes, and that sometimes you have to go to jail. Yes. And Hank tears down his map and his conspiracy chart and puts up a single picture of Cutshaw, which, again, a visual indication that season two, we we know where we would have been going, at least. Indeed. And I like that he doesn't even bother, like, he doesn't bother folding it up and putting it into, like, a file folder and, you know. Here, you know, here's no, I just I don't need this anymore. I'm done with the case. Let's rip it off, throw it in the trash. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like the kind of way that Hank does things. I, I can't imagine. He doesn't have a file of old cases. He's <laughs> got a file of old bottles, probably. There's a there's sort of a rapid fire uh, thing at the end, not just montage, but rapid fire scenes at the end that all tie up this this thing in a nice little, nice little bow, because the next thing we see is Gretchen coming to the house. Hank's cleaning up and he's going to sell the place, which is. Him moving on from the relationship that has been haunting him this entire series. 
And also, you know, the, there's been a murder in the house now. That's pro- probably going to hurt his ability to sell it, I would guess. That's true. Although, I bet that's not the first place Hanks lived where there was murders. Probably not. <laughs> I'm just saying I think he's going to take a bath based on what he paid Gretchen for it versus what he's going to be able to sell it for. Yeah, that makes a, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. It's okay. He's still got those, some bearer bonds left, I'm sure. Uh, not many. He used a lot of them to bail poor Brit out of jail, but indeed, and and like he's got to devote half of the sale money to Brit because he took it from him in the first place. Yes, well, and he's also got to be paying for uh, Steph's uh, house or Steph's uh, home. So yeah, Hank's uh, Hank may need to take some jobs in season two. <sighs> Every time we talk about season two, I get sad. I know, me too. Except we're about to talk about the final scene, which is the best. Yes. Okay. There's a uh, one last thing with Laura Ross. Where she she strolls up to him and they get this nice little cute moment between them where they talk about, well, it probably wouldn't have worked. I'm pretty high maintenance. And Hank says, eh, so is my truck. We make it work. The relationship between Laura Ross and Hank where it was a clearly a romantic relationship they just didn't have time for, but that it was all there and, and just ready to be picked up. I really like that relationship. Yeah, and it's it, and it could have been romantic, but it didn't need to be because it was primarily a professional thing, and they worked well together in that way. So it, I liked it. Right. If the if when she disappears at the end of episode twelve, if there was a romantic tie, it would have changed the tenor of that whole thing. Yes, because then he is chasing after his girlfriend. Right. And I'm glad they didn't do that. Instead, it's it's about the case and the person, and I think that's really important. One last stop with Katie and Britt, which is melancholy and bittersweet because we still don't exactly know where these guys are but there's definitely the sense that laura allen's uh katie has sort of softened on brit and laura allen and and michael raymond james just kill it in this last scene between the two of them uh beautiful and brit has that he's he's finally gotten to the acceptance place he had we had to accelerate brit through the acceptance like if this had not been a one season show i feel like he could have stayed mad at her she could have stayed mad at him for a while because he does go very quickly from I never want to see you again to I want to be with you and then even to tear up the paternity report. I don't even want to see it. That kid's going to be my my kid. Uh, but I but I bought it because, you know, things had accelerated around him a little bit. So it makes sense that his emotional journey would, would accelerate a bit as well. Yes. So and it's just it's, it's a lovely moment when he says he doesn't care. And then that final scene. <sighs> Them in the truck. In the truck, which is how we began. Just the two of them. It's and it's and they're and they're in the truck forever. That's the way the show ends is they will never not be in the truck. Yes. Yeah. There's that there's that permanent they they stop at the stoplight. There's that beautiful speech. You gonna be okay without me? Gonna have anybody cut your food for you? You got no one to hide Easter eggs for. Yeah. Dude, you're gonna be miserable. You do realize you don't have to go. What? You don't have to go. I just take a left up here, hop on the freeway, down to Mexico. In a couple of hours, we're sitting on the beach in Baja having margaritas. You gonna order a margarita? I'll fall off the wagon. You do that for me? Yeah. And for another guy I know. Just live down there the rest of our lives. We'd have to sleep late, take naps in the afternoon. We'd probably get used to that, though. I go straight, you go to prison. I take a left. It's all on Mexico. 
answer to all our problems. Never get sick, you never get old. The vacation that never ends. So what do you say, partner? Which way will it be? And then over the credits, the 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 credits drop out, and we hear the sound of the truck driving on. <sighs> such such a good finale, such a good show. I'm I'm a little sad to be to be done with my uh, my little uh, rewatch of it now. I've uh, I do that every year, of course, but this is the first year I've done a podcast related surrounding it. Thank you for giving me the excuse to do this. I I have because of Peak TV, I have virtually no time to rewatch things, you know, and, and what little I do has to be devoted to stuff like I can watch with my wife or my kids. So this was, thank you for giving me the excuse to watch the finale again. Cause I don't know when I would have gotten to it. Otherwise I'm, I'm delighted to have given the excuse. I'm, I'm very happy that you were able to hear to, uh, to sort of send this thing off with me, because like I say, you were there right at the beginning, Alan, thank you so much for, for being here with me. Uh, do you want to throw a couple quick plugs out there? I have a feeling your relationship is way higher than mine, but just in case anyone doesn't know where to find you. Uh, you can find me at Uproxx. You can find me on Twitter at Seppenwall. Um, TV the Book is on sale. Uh, the Revolution was televised, my last book. Still on sale, also excellent. I think I mentioned Terriers in there some, at some point because I wrote a lot about Sean Ryan. So yeah, I'm I'm all Terriers up all over the place. And both of those books, I highly recommend. I've torn through both of them and, and greatly enjoy both those books. And people should definitely go out and, and buy them. So, 13 episodes of Great TV, damn near perfect ending, and that lingering what if to keep us all dreaming of more. Yeah, ain't we got fun. Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tayan. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Tayan. Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.